If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop for animation news and commentary. I'm Jim Hill, and I'd like to welcome you back to the second show of this series, which will be built around Drew Taylor's most recent visits to exotic Emeryville and the always colorful Culver City. So, Drew, get in here. Uh, I'm here. I'm here. Okay, cool. So, like I said, I'm the guy who gets stuck in the woods of New Hampshire. But again, you got to go to Sony Pictures Animation last week. So, this was the Hotel Transylvania summer vacation tease thing. Yes, it was sort of a it was sort of a media kickoff. We saw footage from that in another movie that I don't think I'm even allowed to talk about yet that is also coming from Sony Pictures Animation, but it was great to see footage from Hotel Transylvania 3 to hear Gendy Tartakovsky, the great animator, talk about it. Andy Samberg was there. Selena Gomez was there. Keegan-Michael Key was there. So it seemed like everybody was really excited about the movie and the footage looks great. So I'm hoping for the best on that one. Now, what's kind of intriguing this time around is like if we look back at the original Hotel Transylvania, which I want to say was September 2012, And then there were those of us who really hoped that after the next Hotel Transylvania 2, which came out in 2015, that Kennedy would get to make his Popeye movie, which kind of broke my heart that that never went forward. But again, these did decent business. The first one did $358 million worldwide. Second one did one and a half times that business, did four seventy-three. million. Wow. But again, these are movies, because of the Transylvania theming, The thinking at Sony was that they released them in late September and they can soak into Halloween because, you know, we now live in this age where Halloween is almost as big a holiday as Christmas. But what do you make of the decision to shift Hotel Transylvania 3 to July 13th release date? Well, one of the things is that the storyline has the entire cast of monsters on a cruise ship being uh, charmed by... We find out Van Helsing's great, 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 whatever, granddaughter, who Dracula, played by Adam Sandler, is in love with. She's got this plot to kind of do away with all the monsters on the ship. But also, I think you have to look at the financials, right? Because we were talking earlier, the Toy Story franchise went from Toy Story 2 was at at Thanksgiving, Toy Story 3 was in the summer, and that did just so much better than the first one. Oh, yeah. It's nuts. I mean, November 1999, the Toy Story 2 comes out and worldwide does $497 million. Toy Story 3, they shift it from November to a June 18th release date in 2010, does $1.6 billion worth of business, which, I mean, you know, you know, it's hard to ignore the great fountain of cash that one gets when you go to those summer months and you've got all those kids out from school. But it's going to be kind of intriguing to me to watch a 
a Hotel Transylvania in that summer space. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love these movies for their truly goofy animation. I mean, that they are such great celebrations of physical comedy and extreme drawings and that sort of thing. And was there any particular scenes from what you were shown that really stood out? Yeah, well, I mean, we know him as being someone who, like you said, is in love with physical comedy. He was finally able to break free of the writing team from the previous two movies, which I know that you have heard that they didn't get along so well. Him and Adam Smigel, who, or Robert Smigel, I should say, who is Adam Sandler's main collaborator. And there was a scene that was set on Gremlin Air, which was really interesting because you know the history with Gremlins and Walt Disney and the Roald Dahl story and obviously the Joe Dante Gremlins movies. But this was just a hilarious sequence set in this rickety airplane that transports all the monsters where they meet the cruise ship. And it was just amazing. All the sort of rules of 3D animation where you don't change the model and you don't squish or stretch or exaggerate too much, those go completely out of the window. I mean, it's more like a stop motion movie where they have different heads for each character for different looks and the exaggerated proportions and everything. I mean, it was a really delightful. I know you're a fan of his work and kind of wish that he would get out of the Transylvania franchise. And I think he said he was done after the second one, but he came up with this idea about a cruise ship and was really inspired. It would be lovely to see him get away from the Transylvania franchise for a little while, I think. I don't know about you. I am kind of intrigued about the whole, they drag me back in, that evidently the story he tells is that he finished the second one, he takes his family on a cruise, and then the Hotel Transylvania crew just sort of wanders back in because of what he's experienced with his family. And what a fun setting this would be for that film. But yeah, I, I guess for me, given that it's just less than three years since the last one came out again, November of 2015, so it'll be interesting to see what the response here. Now, to sort of pivot to what you just saw up in Emeryville, different situation, because we're now looking at an Incredibles sequel that, what is it, 13 years since the last time? Yeah, 13 or 14 years, because it came out in November 2004, Mm -hmm. the first one. So yeah, we're looking close to 14 years between movies. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, the thing that they kept hitting over again and again at this press event was that they had such a short amount of time to make this movie. Pixar kind of like schedule grab bag. Toy Story 4 was supposed to open this summer. No, that's it exactly. In fact, I was doing the research for today's show and here's poor Brad Bird talking about, well, yeah, we have an idea, but we have a release date in 2019 and and then suddenly, no, no, by the way, you need to have this out for the summer of 2018. So that's crazy. Yeah. It's one of these things where it's like, I mean, when you think about how long people have been asking Brad about this movie, it's so funny, you know, in doing the research for today that as far back as Ratatouille. Just like, yeah, that's a wonderful movie. Where's Incredibles 2? Right. And the whole time, it's like, well, Brad talks about, well, like, I got a couple ideas. I got a couple of things. In fact, I guess that's what's fascinating to me is that Brad has always been a good, loyal... Again, he appreciates what Pixar means. For example, he was part of the opening crew 
and Pixar. But everybody knew each other from their CalArts days. In fact, that's the thing I find fascinating is the very first thing that Brad works on and is actually creates a trailer. You can go online and look at it right now for a hand-drawn version of the spirit. And he did that back in 1980. So this is a guy who's really been into the sort of the comic book genre and all that ever since. So he does the Iron Giant for Warner Brothers, and that's out, what, August of... 99. There we go. And we don't have to get into what happened there, all right? (laughs) An amazing movie that just nobody went to initially when it was out in theaters. But And Brad had done such wonderful work on the early days of The Simpsons and The Critic and King of the Hill. So the guys at Pixar were like, after seeing particularly what he could do for features, it's like, come here, work with us. And he walked through the door the following year, and he, he already had a lot of the Incredibles in his head. But did he talk about that at all? Because, you know, again, I guess for me, when you look at when the Incredibles initially came out, this, I think, is, is really, really, really important. The year previous, summer of 2002, there was Raimi Spider-Man. Incredibles comes out, and then a, a full six months later, we get Batman Begins. I mean, there were only two superhero movies on either side of this thing. It was basically virgin right. turf. And so now to come back into this space where, you know, last year there were six superhero movies released by the Warners and Disney and Fox and the like, and, and this year... If you count The Incredibles 2, there's nine? How do you stand out in that situation, especially, again, coming back to this world after 13 years? Well, you know, he actually talked about that, and Brad Bird, who has extreme appreciation for metaphor, said that it was like coming into like a a football field that had just been played on, and everything's patchy, and there's kind of, it's dirty, and and he had to figure out how to make something special. And eventually, he said they just came back to the idea of, listen, the thing that makes the Incredibles special is the fact that they are a family, and that we can use this metaphor of family and push it even further. And then from the footage we saw, which I've probably saw combined maybe 30 to 40 minutes of footage, the thing that's really going to set it apart is that you can do things in animation that even with the most sophisticated visual effects, you just can't do in live action. So we saw a train chase sequence where Helen, who now has taken over kind of the Bob role of being recruited to be a superhero is chasing this monorail and she is on a bike that can split up into two halves. So each wheel can sort of split up and, and operate independently. And so she can stretch and she can go in between buildings and up a crane. And at one point is throttling both sides of the, of the monorail inside of a tunnel. And that's where you realize like that's what sets this movie apart. I think is the Brad bird of it all. And through talking to people and what you just said, like, there was development done on this movie as early as 2010 with the underminer sequence, which, you know, picks up right where the last movie left off. And these ideas that he had had about Helen being the one that returns to superhero work and Jack-Jack having his powers. But I had no idea that even preliminary work had been done on this movie because you just never heard anything about it. What's so interesting about Pixar is that Emeryville, because of where it is, 
is so unlike other animation studios that leak like sieves. There are things that go on at Pixar that only get out years after the fact. I mean, for example, after The Incredibles comes out, the original November 2004. And again, he's delivered this film. And so they were like, all right, so Brad, what do you want to do? And Brad's response kind of throws them. It's like, look, there's this book that just came out earlier this year, April of 2004. It's James D'Alessandro's 1906, which is this novel about the great San Francisco earthquake. And Brad is like, Pixar is really the new Disney. What's particularly interesting about this window of time is just in the sixth, let's say nine months before The Incredibles comes out, January 30th, 2004, Pixar actually breaks off negotiation with Disney. They've decided Eisner is being a pain in the butt. They can't get the terms they like. They don't feel respected. So they're going to walk out the door. They're coming to the end that they had signed back in. Well, this was this was the deal after the original deal from 91, where it was just a three picture deal. So the deal ends with cars. And so Brad's argument is like, look, you're the new Disney. And Remember what Walt did. Walt walked out of doing just animation to, to doing live action. And, and given that you guys do such wonderful computer animation, and given we just did this movie where buildings fall down, wouldn't it make sense that couldn't we do our first live action project and it wouldn't be cool if we did an event movie like the 1906 San Francisco earthquake? And so they actually begin working on this. In fact, I had friends who go up and visit Emeryville and they're like, well, what's with the deal with the turn of the century buildings that you guys have on your computers? Like, never mind, look away, Don't nothing to see here, go away. But well, what ends up happening is that, so here's Steve Jobs, who's just broken off negotiations with Disney. And he realizes the, well, okay, well, crap, let me think about this. Our deal with Disney ends with cars. That's 2000. And we deliver that for the summer of 2005. So the very next movie is the one that we're going to have to be able to show as a work in progress to other studios. Because face it, Pixar isn't ready to take on distribution all by itself. They're going to need a a studio that's going to handle help with production costs and handle distribution. And so what's the next film that's coming down the pike? But it's Ratatouille, which at this point is being directed by John Pinkava. And actually, at this point, it's not called Ratatouille. It's just called Rats. <laughs> is that really what it was called? It was called Rats. Okay. Oh, my Lord. And at this point, all of the rats are walking on four legs. And and it's really not coming together. I mean, no disrespect to John Pinkava. Lovely gentleman. Did an amazing job with Jerry's Game, the short. But he just got lost making this feature. And so here's Brad. Brad is working on 1906. And John Lasseter reaches out to him. It's like, look, I hate to do this because I know you have your heart set on our first live action film and it's a special project. But the future of the company depends on how Ratatouille turns out. We need our A team on it, our A game, and you're the guy. And so Brad has to set this thing aside. And there's a story I love he tells about going into the team that's working in Red Stewie because it's like, in the end, there are only, out of the entire movie, there are only two scenes out of the entire film from the John Pacava mo- version of the movie that made it into the finished film. 
they let everything go and start it over. And they recast people. They re- did new designs, right, for characters. Oh, it was nuts. Yeah. But anyway, so could Brad basically has a meeting with the creative team and says, look, here's the deal. We're on a plane that clearly is crashing. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump out of the plane together and what we're going to do is on our way as we plummet to the ground we're all going to work together and knit a parachute and my god when you look at ratatouille when you look at that film a masterful movie it is and those scenes for example when he they visualize what flavors look like and what flavors look like in combination i mean that there's impossible stuff in this movie right and yet he, they delivered the goods and, and, and under impossible conditions. Never mind the fact that in the middle of production in, in January 2006, Disney turns around and buys Pixar outright for $7.4 I mean, when Brad was sort of pressed into service, it was just sort of like, look, our future is on your back. So did you get any sense of that? Because while he's making Ratatouille, he's still getting hectored about Incredibles 2. And the very thing you talk about, how that film ended off with the Underminers scene. So did you get to see any of that at all? Yes, we saw the, the opening sequence, which goes right into them fighting the Underminer. And what's really interesting is that they kind of designed it for the midnight screenings that are inevitably inevitably going to be happening in June, where they show the first movie and then they show the second one right afterwards. So even to the point where before they sort of go underground to fight the Underminer, all the shots and all of the camera movements match the end of the first movie exactly. And then once they go underground, it's like, welcome to Incredibles 2. The camera is looser. Things are more sophisticated. The cutting is a little bit quicker. So it's really an Incredibles kind of, it picks up right there where where it left off. It ends with them defeating the Underminer means things for the family. So they have to go into hiding again at this kind of shabby motel that anybody who's ever gone to the, the Disney studio in Burbank will recognize is pretty much an exact <laughs> copy of the Safari Inn which is in Burbank and was used in the great Tony Scott movie, True Romance. I mean, their shabby motel is exactly this motel. But the other thing that I forgot to tell you is that I asked him about 1906 at the press day. Mm. I said, I got to ask you, because I feel like every time I talk to him, whether it's about Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol or Tomorrowland or whatever, I said, what is the status of 1906? And he looked at me and he said, you know what? It's not dead. That is great to hear. So take that as you will. When we live in this Netflix, Amazon world where suddenly, I mean, in fact, what's fascinating, I've actually got a couple of quotes here from Brad talking about when he's trying to get the movie off the ground. In fact, uh, February 2009. In fact, what's kind of interesting is that in this exact window, Brad had to pivot and was working on Ratatouille and trying to be a helpful employee. But again, here's Andrew Stanton. And Andrew Stanton, he delivers Wally in June of 2008 and another big hit for the company. And Andrew has the same sort of ambitions that Brad does, but Andrew wants to make John Carter of Mars. And his argument is like, look, it's like 1906 is just one book. But on the other hand, John Carter of Mars, first of all, this is could be our Indiana Jones on Mars, 
and there are multiple Edgar Rice Burroughs books. Right. So this is a series. If we're going to go Pixar first live action movie, doesn't it make sense to launch a series? And so these two projects are competing. And what particularly complicates the situation is September 2008, we have the financial meltdown. At this point, 1906 is so expensive that Disney actually has to reach out to Warner Brothers, which again, remember, Brad already had a relationship with because he'd made Iron Giant. And so the only way they were going to be able to afford to make this, what at this point is projected to be a $200 million live action movie with these amazing CG sequences that Pixar will create, is that it's got to be Warner's and Pixar in association with Walt Disney Pictures. And in fact, this got so far along close to happening that at one point, Warner Brothers locks down every single soundstage they have in a lot, figuring that this is going to be the biggest thing they ever did, so they need all the soundstages. But then the project stalls, and Brad in February of 2009 is talking with Latina Review about what's going on with it, and he says, this is a really hard script to write. Interesting, like, in the middle of this interview, he talks about, I had some questions about the script of 1906, and Andrew Stanton and John Lasseter gave me some feedback on that. <laughs> and it's like, and Andrew's, yeah, write slower. <laughs> but anyway, th he talked about the problem with 1906 is there's so much going on. Such an amazing story about, for example, he talks about how Chinatown coexisted with the Barbary Coast, which was just like the Wild West, and at the same time, Nob Hill had the upper class, and it's this time between two centuries where you had horses and cars existing together. It's just this volatile mix of things, and then you throw in an earthquake. I mean, come on, if that doesn't sell popcorn. But again, it's trying to make it fit in that two-and-a-half-hour box, which is why I love the fact that, that if it's not dead, potentially... Right. This means that it could be a multi-part thing on-demand service. So rather than trying to make this tell the story in, in two hours, they could do six or they could do eight or ten. And a premiere series like this from one of the world's most celebrated directors could be an interesting fit for a little streaming service that uh, a certain company is launching This is very soon. true. You know. That is just speculation on my part. But I think what's kind of interesting about post- 1906 development is that he didn't bring back one of the projects he was working on at Warner Brothers that has become this kind of fabled project, which is Raygun. The way this project has always been described is Flash Gordon meets film noir, that there's a description of this is the last human detective in the universe, and he's hired for a case to solve the mystery of this singer who, I swear to God, this is her name, Venus Envy. you got to understand, this is Brad writing in his early <laughs> career. I know that's low-hanging fruit. But yeah, he went after right. they began all of this development. In fact, supposedly, this was one of the conditions of Brad actually reaching out to Warner Brothers. I mean, coming to them with this... 1906 package and with the notion of look you know i have potentially the next titanic if you look at a lot of the coverage during this period everybody was talking about how oh my god this is the tragic romance this is the epic this is titanic this is james cameron without james cameron and that was why everybody was so excited to make this project but every time brad would deliver a script or get somebody else to deliver the script it's like why isn't this Titanic? It's like, well, it's a whole right. city that's involved that gets destroyed. It's not just one boat going down. 
that's the weirdest part is they could never quite get their arms around the script. And again, I think because of that sort of artificial two and a half hour conceit, what's especially fascinating about this is, again, this quote from Lantito, a review from February 2009, he closes out with, there are some wonderful people who are interested in 1906, and I hope they'll still be interested when I finish rewriting the script. And that may not have been the case, or it may, because... The interesting thing is, April of 2010, Hollywood Reporter announces that Brad is in the running to direct Mission Impossible 4, which coincidentally starred Tom Cruise, who evidently had been one of the people that they'd reached out to about starring in 1906. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. So the deal goes through. Obviously, we do not have 1906. Those sound stages are empty and filled with other things. So so he lost Reagan in the process, I'm assuming, correct? Yeah, it's still in the void. And the irony is that the Warner Brothers executives, in fact, they're the ones who just kept pushing back because it was, again, again, it was a film noir. And (laughs) these great interviews with Brad where he talks about the Warner's executives, it's like, well, if you do that in an animated film, that'll frighten five-year-olds. And Brad's response is, well, maybe the five-year-old shouldn't be going to this movie. Brad was always... A guy who was looking to do different things with animation. In fact, to circle back to Incredibles, I mean, one of the things I love about the initial film is as much as it is a legitimate superhero movie, the family thing really is front and center and really does work. Yeah, I'm in this new footage. You're going to be blown away with just how much that stuff is developed. I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has seen the trailer and you're going to get to see so many new sides of all the characters. Yeah, I mean, that first movie really pushed new ground, not only on this in the story, but just that was the first Pixar movie to feature human characters in a predominant role. I mean, they really push things technologically, which it sounds like they've done again. And you were at the D23 presentation last summer. You know that these are new models for every character. Everybody has a lot more emotion, a lot more animation to each of them. And you can tell with the footage. I mean, these are just much more sophisticated looking characters in a really brilliantly designed world. I mean, we saw a whole presentation just about their new house, which is like mid-century modern. Len will love it, I'm sure. Yeah, so it's really going to push some boundaries. But To get back to his wanting to do the first live-action Pixar movie, obviously, John Carter was made. And we we know that when they did set visits and edit bay visits, people didn't go to another studio. They went to Pixar. But that is not the first Pixar live-action movie. No. In fact, not the telltales out of school. But what eventually happened here is that the perception, at least at Pixar, was that John Carter was going to be tough, that Andrew hadn't directed a live action before. And in fact, there's a lot of people who suggest that John Carter was kind of done in by the fact that Andrew hadn't done live action before, which meant that if you're a Steven Spielberg and you understand that you have to sell your movie. So what you do is you look at the script and you pick a couple of big action scenes and you shoot them up front. So that you then can turn to your studio's marketing team and say, okay, here's the action scenes. Here's the stuff you can use to sell the movie. I'm going to go back and shoot the the quiet dialogue scenes and that sort of thing. And you have the juice to sell the movie where Andrew, 
looked at the script and thought, wow, I'm not confident about shooting the big action scenes, but I'll start with the quiet throne room stuff right? and build up my confidence. And then by the end of the film, I'll be ready to shoot the big action stuff. And so when it came time to cut together the first trailers for John Carter or the daily started to come back to the studio and it's like, what are these snoozy dialogue scenes or, you know, how am I supposed to sell this to, to 12 year old boys? It's a scene of somebody looking askance in the throne room. <laughs> I, it just—it was one of these situations that they didn't have what they needed to sell the movie, and that you only get that one chance to make a first impression. Yes, the, well, there was that famously underwhelming first teaser that just did yeah. not do anything. But that was also—I mean, you would have thought that he would have known because he would have—he had to turn these shots over to animators to do all the creatures and everything else that. I get that, but I guess, again, just it's hindsight is twenty twenty. And in fact, I guess what for me is the, the real irony here is John Carter comes out in March of 2012. Huge flop. Company has to take a, an enormous write-down on it. But less than two months later, here's Brad Bird signing to direct and develop Tomorrowland. And I think you and I have talked about this before. So we jump ahead six months. The Walt Disney Company buys Lucasfilm for $4 billion. And in early 2013, Kathleen Kennedy quietly reaches out to Brad Bird and says, we're making new Star Wars movies. And we saw what you did with The Iron Giant. We saw what you did with The Incredibles. And we saw what you did with Ghost Protocol. Given your knowledge of CG, your knowledge of story structure, and the fact that you clearly have a gift for live action stuff, you're our guy. We want you to direct episode seven. And this is really all about what an honorable guy Brad is. He actually talked about, it's like, you know, for a moment there, I thought it would work out that I could do Tomorrowland and then go straight into episode seven. But then he just, he had to cold-bloodedly look at it and just, look, there was just no way to make that schedule and then to give Tomorrowland the attention that it deserved because Star Wars Episode Seven was a train headed out of the station. And so he did the honorable thing. What's the old cliche? You got to dance with the one that brung you. Right. And so it's, he'd already signed to do Tomorrowland and, and he kind of justified it in his head. It's like, well, look, I already did the high-profile sequel thing with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, so it's not a bad thing that I'm taking a pass on Episode 7. And when you look at something at Tomorrowland, I mean, how many times? It's so rare today to get to do a film of that size that's original. Yes. So I shouldn't pass on this opportunity, and and I think we all know hap what happened with, <laughs> with Tomorrowland. Well, another so. fascinating wrinkle to that is the person that he was going to have, quote-unquote, prep the movie, prep Star Wars, mm -hmm. but while he was shooting Tomorrowland, yep. is Colin Trevorrow, who was hired for Episode Nine and subsequently fired from Episode Nine <laughs> and replaced by J.J. Abrams, who replaced Brad Bird on The Force Awakens. So it all comes around. Wow, I didn't know that. Ben. Yeah, okay. and the other thing that's that's fascinating, talking about Lucasfilm and Hotel Transylvania, is that hmm. Gendy was originally mm. supposed to go to Lucasfilm, and this has just come out recently in interviews, that and become like the John Lasseter of Lucasfilm animation. He was supposed to direct a movie, and then he was supposed to supervise subsequent animated series from the company, and that never happened. But I think you and I are both big fans of his Clone Wars animated series. God, yeah. Not to be mean here, but if 
episode three, Revenge of the Sith, had been half as entertaining <laughs> as what the Clone Wars stuff that Kennedy did, I think there wouldn't be quite so much bashing of the prequels. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree. Yeah. So something happened and and he kind of fell out of that. And then Lucas took his Clone Wars and made his own Clone Wars and basically deleted from the history books all of his contributions and you can't even get it on DVD now. So yeah, it's kind of a fascinating what could have been with him and Bird playing in the sandbox. But I guess my question to you is, do you think he's going to return to live action or is he going to stick around Emeryville and try to make Ray Gun or try to do something else? What do you think and how do you feel about that? This is where it gets awkward, folks. I think a lot depends on what happens with John Lasseter. And it's kind of interesting that we are coming up on that window for the the close of the six-month sabbatical that John took to step away from the company to deal with the controversy. There's been a lot of talk about if John doesn't come back, who then is in charge of Pixar and whether it's one man or one woman or a committee of people. And it would make sense that somebody who has Brad Bird's skill set, it would be great to have him in charge of a studio calling shots and that sort of thing. But, you know, that's the what impresses me about Brad is if you look back over his career, you can't ever really predict what his next choice is. That... I mean, again, very honorable guy. I don't know if somebody dangled episode seven in front of me. I could have turned to George Clooney and go, bye, George. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next six months. Or more to the point, I'm a little concerned about how The Incredibles is going to do this summer. Because it's in, it just seems to me, an almost impossible spot. Yeah. I mean... Black Panther is finally, finally winding down after it's done $673 million just here in the States. Yeah, they announced the DVD is coming out and it was still number six at the box office this weekend. And it was only down 39% from the weekend before. It's crazy. It is. It is. But we've got Infinity Wars opening within the next 10 days. There's a three week window there for that film all by itself before Deadpool shows up. And Credible comes out June 15th. Right. Credible Stew. And but again, it's only got a three-week window before Ant-Man and Wasp yeah. comes out. Yeah, and you've got Solo in between Deadpool and Incredibles. You've got Jur- yeah. Jurassic World from Universal coming out. The first one was directed by Colin Trevorrow. Brad Bird has a cameo, a vocal cameo, actually, in the first Jurassic World as the monorail operator. Oh. Yeah, that, that, so to tie that in. Oh. So, yeah, this summer is going to be like, people are going to be like picking their teeth up off the floor it's going to be so brutal Mm. but you're right if there's one thing we know it's that you can never predict what bird's next move will be i don't know if he would i could see him running a studio i mean this is the only director in the history of pixar who has a writer director credit to himself Mm -hmm. he had a shared story credit on ratatouille but ratatouille incredibles now incredibles 2 he's directed himself and written himself so i mean that's just crazy to me he seems like a real force of nature on the filmmaking side. So it would be interesting to see if he got, if he would even let himself be bogged down with the kind of day-to-day operational concerns of running a studio. And we'll see if it'll, the position will carry over and have him overseeing Walt Disney Animation Studios and Toon Studios as, as well. I hate to say this, but as wonderful as that sounds, 
for strictly selfish reasons and given how long he's been working on it, if what happens after The Incredibles is that he does finally get the chance to make 1906, that would thrill me. Yes, I agree. We live in this weird space now where people will work on... I mean, think about, you know, at Cannes, the other side of the wind, Orson Welles is... How many decades was he working on that? And then people, after the fact, finally edited that together for him. And so the fact that, that... Brad has plowed so much of the ground for this great San Francisco earthquake movie and that potentially he could bring it to the marketplace at this window in time where you don't have to worry about the exhibitors. You don't have to worry about that artificial two and a half hour window because, again, you've got to sell popcorn. You can create a piece of straight pipe and and go to one of these on-demand places. And when you think about how much money they just put up for that new Lord of the Rings television project. Right. The interesting thing is so many of these companies are willing to roll the dice in a big way. And when you look at, all right, yeah, Tomorrowland. And I think you were the one who were telling me the great stories about how much got cut out of Tomorrowland. That in a weird sort of way, there's a wonderful, great movie there, but it was so Disney-centric that, what is it? The stories that came out of the test screenings that... There were so many Disney references and that sort of thing. It pulled people out of the film. Right. I'd pay to see the original cut of Tomorrowland, to see what that film was supposed to be before they tried to cut it for a general audience. Right. To work for that bunch of people. Well, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see where he goes. But yeah, I hope that at the very least he takes however many billions of dollars Incredibles 2 is going to make and gets to do whatever he wants. Like, I wanted him to write his own check and do whatever crazy idea, whether it's 1906 or Ray Gun or something that we don't even know about, and just go to town and make something truly incredible. And speaking of big bucks and writing a check, did we talk about this in the first installment of fine-tuning the Hercules thing? Oh, well, you, we did talk about how Jack Nicholson was approached to be Hades and that there is wonderful concept art, but you turned up something that is even more compelling evidence of his involvement in the movie at some point. Swear to God, folks, I was just over at eBay just the other day. A preliminary script for Hercules showed up online. It's got a ridiculous price point. Don't get me wrong. I want to read it. I just don't know if I want to read it for $575 worth. Oh my worth. gosh. They actually did image captures of the first five pages of the script of the thing. And so I was able to read the first five pages of the script. And I swear to God, I'm reading an actual poll from the script. So it's interior, Hades throne room. The sardonic Hades, in quotes, it now says, Jack Nicholson sits brooding upon his black marble throne. With an air of impatience, he rises from the throne and gazes out a window overlooking his domain of the dead. Hades turns to the sound of his door opening, and pain and panic, his angst-ridden winged demon lackeys peer nervously around the door. And Hades says in response, well, well, pain and panic at last. How nice to see your tortured faces. And again, we always love when we get a bonus extra prize here. So they says pain, and again in quotes, we have Bobcat Goldthwaite is in constant agony. Panic, in quotes here, rather than Matt Frewer, the gentleman who voiced the film, it says Richard Lewis. Wow. Who, and it is described as a nervous worry ward. So it's like, 
dead. Do you think he was going to be doing his like, Ivan, 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 that kind of thing for the character? They actually have his first line here. And it's like, I know you're wondering why we're wait. It's that stupid boatman. I mean, paint dries faster than he moves. And he insisted on an exact change. We didn't have any small coins. <laughs> I read that and it's like, oh, Richard Lewis would have been so much fun. Yeah, so, that's uh, amazing. So anyway, finally, actual validation that Jack Nicholson was the first choice for Hades. And, and again, bonus prizes. Richard Lewis or Panic. Wow. So, you heard it here first. Well, thank you so much for sharing that wonderful info from Culver City and Emeryville. I mean, just... You know, I'm out there beating the pavement for you, Jim. I'm coming up with these things. So just happy to do it. And hopefully next week, by the time we record our next episode, I will have visited another magical world in keeping with our Pixar theme of Pixar oh, Fest at Disneyland. That's right. They just, this past weekend, they, they started Pixar Fest, which is supposed to run through September 3rd. But this is just the festival portion. The actual Pixar Pier doesn't open till late June, right? Yes. Or will it, Jim? Have you have you heard anything about that? La, 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 <laughs> la, la, la. And, and as, as we look forward to future shows, so... <laughs> Yeah, so I'll I'll try to go. I'll I'll try to watch the new play parade, the new paint the night, try some Mike Wazowski filled donuts or whatever the, they have, and and report back next time on on all the the amazing Pixar stuff. Cannot wait to hear this. Okay, but if I do that, you have to do something too, Jim. We got to start our series oh. about Pixar in Disney parks. Can we do that? We can start at the very beginning with the Toy Story Playhouse. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> we're, we're ready right. for it. Well, anyway, folks, thanks for listening in today. And on behalf of Drew and myself, thanks for listening to Fine Tuning. And we'll be back again soon with hopefully some fun news stories. Bye. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. <laughs>